Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 10, which is going to be on page 968 of your Pew Bibles. So Matthew 10, uh, we will be looking at verses 16 to 31, um, but before we do that, as you're turning, um, let me just open us in a word of prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we just sung, you are the High King of Heaven. And it's only in you that we can see rightly what is real. And we look to you and to your word because we trust that in you we have the words of eternal life. And so we pray, Lord, that you would focus our hearts upon this word, that you would open us up to receive what you have for us today. And that, Lord, whatever I say may come from you, and that if anything does not come from you, it would be forgotten. And Lord, I trust that you will give concision of speech, conviction of heart, and clarity of mind. And I pray, Lord, that you would do this all for the sake of the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Ever since she was a young girl, Elizabeth knew that God was near. She perceived his presence with her as the morning sun arced gracefully over the hills, casting long shadows in the grass. She smelled the freshness of the dew on the ground and the briny sharpness of the distant sea, and she knew that he was their maker. She was reminded of the depth and breadth of this truth every morning, during morning prayer, when the choir would sing the words of Psalm 95, saying, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the heights of the hills, and the depths of the earth are his as well. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands prepared the dry land. For Elizabeth, the world was charged with the grandeur of God, and the heavens poured forth the glory of his name. To be a witness to him meant living a life of virtuous self-denial before her family and friends. All that was required of her was loving, faithful obedience. And the symphony of creation kept that melody strong in her mind and heart. Here's a question. Does that sound like our experience of the world? My sense is, for us in 2023, the world does not feel charged with the grandeur of God all the time. Many of us live lives alienated from anything not made by human hands. On long summer days, we long for the comfort of air conditioning. And we take for granted the shelter of a roof, or the fact that water is going to come from that faucet. Now, to be clear, Elizabeth is a fictional character. I put her together based on what I've read about what it's like to go to church in medieval England. Um, so totally fictional. But her experience named something that was common at a different time. Um, and even though she is a fictional character, we do share an important thing with Elizabeth. We like her, 
and like all Christians throughout history, have been given a mission. We've been told by Jesus in Acts 1.8 to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. For someone like Elizabeth, this was accomplished um, with the help of the world around her. For her, um, she could really just fit in with the culture around her um, because that culture was one that had was suffused with prayer and scripture and with knowledge of God's world. But for us today, we can't just fit in with culture if we want to be um, accomplishing this mission. In fact, our culture makes it more difficult to experience God's nearness and even more difficult to convince other people of his presence. So for us, um, our culture actually makes it more difficult to bear witness to Jesus. In addition to that, not just kind of the vague experience of the world around us, but even the way um, that our culture has changed its attitude towards Christian faith. Some of us in this room are probably old enough to remember a time when it was assumed that most people went to church. And if they didn't, they were kind of odd. Um, There was something weird about that. And I'm old enough, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember a time when at least most people assumed that Christians were probably good people or that um, they were fine. And maybe if Christianity was flawed, at least Jesus was cool. But in the last few years, we've seen a really radical shift in the way that people think about religion and Christianity. It's no longer um, something that is sort of neutral. It's actually actively opposed. And followers of Jesus are being tolerated less and less in this world. And it's harder and harder for people like us who are just trying to be faithful Christians to not feel some sense of rejection from the world around us for that fact. There's, not, there's a lot of people whose job it is to think about these things and to give them names and to really diagnose everything. Um, and some of that's helpful. And one of the ways that uh, there's one person who talks about it as saying, we now live in a negative world. So there used to be a positive world, which was a world in which most people were Christian. And that was never the entire world, but there were parts of the world that were mostly Christian. And you could assume people felt positive towards it. And then we moved into a neutral world where uh, it wasn't assumed that everybody was Christian, but people would at least feel neutral towards it. There wasn't open hostility. Now, and in some sense at varying places and times throughout history, we live in a negative world. A negative world is different. It's one in which people don't assume Christian morality or Christian theology. People don't assume familiarity with the Bible. And in fact, a lot of basic ideas about what it means to be a Christian are actively opposed. And we face not just quiet rejection, but open hostility. So um, the, the rejection and the resistance to the Christian faith comes less at an idea level and more at an emotional gut level. So in a negative world, it's, um, it's hard to bear witness to Jesus. Some of us 
hear this description of the negative world. And we agree. We're nodding our heads or we're smiling, we're thinking, yes. And that's why we need to carve out our own special place where we can be isolated from these other people. And others of us think that's why we need to fight for our place. Still others of us hear these concerns that people have in a negative world about Christianity, and we actually resonate with some of them. We get it. And we don't know what to do because st- we still want to follow Jesus. We don't want to give that up. But we also resonate with the critiques. So what are we to do in a negative world? Matthew 10 shows us. I've turned to Matthew 10 because I want to, when I have a question like this, when we have a question like this, we want to look to Jesus because he's the one who has the words of eternal life. It's like when the disciples hear a hard teaching and they don't know where else to go because they say, Jesus, you're the only one who can speak the truth and give life. And so we're not permitted to cut ourselves off from other people. We still have a mission. We still have to go to them. So the question that we're going to consider today is how can we bear witness to Jesus in a negative world, in a world that opposes Christianity? So we've turned to Matthew 10 because, like I said, I think that um, this text helps us and that Jesus gives us words of wisdom. Um, So I'm just going to begin by reading verse 16, and that will be uh, kind of our jumping off point. So when you look at Matthew 10, verse 16, this is what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, in the midst of wolves, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So this is our, our kind of headline. Um, Jesus calls his disciples, us, sheep. We're used to that, right? We know he's the shepherd. But he says that he's sending us into the midst of wolves. He's naming the negative world. That there's actually going to be opposition. The thing about being a sheep when you're around wolves, you don't have any sharp teeth. You don't have claws. You don't have any means to protect yourself against wolves. You have to rely on the goodness and the strength of the shepherd. So this is the posture that Jesus tells us we're in. He says that we are going to the wolves. And then he gives the headline. He tells us how to bear witness in a negative world. And he says that we must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This week, we'll look at that first part, what it means to be wise as serpents. And Lord willing, I'll be with you next week, and I'll get to, we'll get to think together about what it means to be innocent as doves. So, what is the wisdom that Jesus counsels? How does he help us be wise as serpents? Well, um, the first thing to notice is that he uses a special word for wisdom. Um, So this is, in in the ancient world, there were a couple different ways of talking about wisdom. There was the wisdom that kind of meditates on what is the origin of life, 
What's the beginning principle that got everything moving? What does it mean to be alive? You know, these are questions we think of, and maybe we roll our eyes because we think this sounds like philosophy. It's the useless part of our wisdom. Um, and, and that is a word that gets used in the New Testament, and um, we're called in some ways to care about that kind of wisdom. But here, the word that Jesus uses for wisdom is not that. It's a different kind of wisdom. It's practical wisdom, practical reasoning. It's the kind of wisdom that tells you not to start an argument in hour two of a nine-hour drive with your family. It's the kind of wisdom that tells you no matter what you do, do not try to guess if a woman is pregnant. Don't do it. It's the wisdom that tells you not to touch a hot stove or how long to cut that two-by-four when you're building. I'm not a builder, you can tell. Um, This is the kind of practical wisdom that comes from experience in life. It doesn't come from um, reading books, which is good. I love reading books. But it comes from experience in life. And Jesus is telling us to have this kind of practical wisdom. Um, And if the disciples, if we are to accomplish our mission, then we need this kind of wisdom. And so the question now is, what does that wisdom look like? So we're going to read um, verses 17 to 23, and we'll begin to see a little bit of what that wisdom looks like. So Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and having, have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So right away, what's the first thing that Jesus says about how to be wise as serpents? The first thing he says, it's the very first word, beware. Beware. That's already a different posture than I'm used to. This is, this is a call to a kind of wakefulness, to being attentive to our life in a way that for someone like me, maybe you share this feeling, um, sometimes you go through the motions so easily that it's hard to kind of be awake in ordinary life. And Jesus is saying, don't live like that. Be awake. Beware. And not just beware in general, but beware of men. And here, it's important that he's talking about certain kinds of men. If we look at verse 18, we say he's talking about governors and kings, people in power. So, The ones that we should beware of, the ones with whom we should be careful, are the people with power. And this is, remember, all in the context of being sent out to bear witness to Jesus. And so when we're sent out 
when we're accomplishing our mission, who are the people that we need to be concerned with, careful about how we are around them, and it's the people with power. Jesus is telling us the wisdom of um, being wise as serpents, and it involves being careful and being wakeful to the people who are in power. And at this point, honestly, I'm thinking I'd rather stay home, right? It sounds already hard. Uh, But Jesus isn't trying to scare his disciples. He's warning them. He's giving them courage. He doesn't sugarcoat anything either. If you look at verse 19, just what is the first word of verse 19? Does somebody want to call out what that first word is? When. He doesn't say if. If they hand you over. He says when. And now, this is a specific context. This is early church. So for us, maybe that's less common. But notice, Jesus is not trying to talk sweet to them. He's not trying to set their expectations in the wrong way. He's telling them, honestly, if you're going to bear witness before kings and governors, you need to be aware. They will hand you over. He um, is giving them wisdom. And he's also, by the way, uh, he's still sending them. He's warning them, but he's still sending them. So he has confidence that they're able to do what he calls them to do. And his, um, Jesus' straight talk does not end there. If we look at verses 21 and 22, we see that Jesus just ramps it up even more. So even family members are going to be at war with each other. And in some sense, you're going to be hated by all for bearing witness. This is sounding like a negative world, isn't it? You're going to be hated by all for bearing witness to Jesus. So far, Jesus is pointing to all the ways that wisdom is calling us not to trust in human power. And this is what we need. I, I don't like when people tell me what I want to hear. And Jesus is not telling us what we want to hear. He's giving us the truth. He's warning us. He's helping us to be bold and to have confidence. But Jesus doesn't just give us bad news. It's not that kind of sermon. Jesus gives us something real and good to hold on to. When we look at verses 19 and 20, look what it says. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that very hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So Jesus says, do not be anxious. That, if you've ever told somebody not to be anxious, just saying it might not work. So maybe to us that sounds initially like Jesus is being a little callous. But then he gives us a reason not to be anxious. And it's not because you'll be okay. It's because the spirit of your father is with you. The things that you're being told to do, the mission that you're sent out with, you're not on your own. Jesus is saying, the spirit of my father is in you and with you, and he will give you the words to speak. Jesus said that in the tensest moments of our lives, when persecution feels the most intense, we're not alone. Jesus said that he wouldn't leave us as orphans in this world, that he would send the comforter, our advocate and guide, the Holy Spirit. And this is where he shows 
that this is what it means to be wise. And Jesus also makes clear that on the other side of this persecution, in verses 22 and 23, what's on the other side of persecution? Salvation. Jesus' presence. He says, I'm going to come. So even if we face all manner of hardship, the wisdom of Jesus for bearing witness in a negative world is telling us not to trust in human power, but to trust in God's power. Not to trust in human power, but to, God, to trust in God's power. Because only Jesus, his Father, and the Spirit are trustworthy. Because in a world of opposition and rejection, they are the ones who are saying, I'm with you. And don't be anxious, because I'll give you what to say. And don't worry, I will come to you. I will save you. So this is the first bit of wisdom that we get from Jesus. How can we be wise as serpents? By knowing who to trust. In a negative world, we must know who to trust. Jesus' word to us this morning is that we are foolish if we try to put our trust in anything other than him. If we don't put our trust above all in our heavenly father, especially in a negative world, where Christians don't get a fair hearing very often. We must trust the Father to speak his Son's wisdom by the power of the Spirit. What I'm, what I'm calling us to do, what Jesus is calling us to do in this moment, is a bit like if you've ever had swim lessons. Maybe for some of us that was a long time ago. Or maybe it was like we never actually learned how to swim. But if you have had swim lessons, there's a moment where uh, the teacher is going to tell you, you've got to float. And they don't give you like a floaty or anything. They don't give you water wings. They just said, all right, now it's your turn. Go float. Throw you in the pool. And you're thinking, that seems like a bad idea. I don't want to drown. But the truth is that you cannot in that moment trust in your arms to flail and to keep yourself above the water. What you have to do is just actually slow down, take a deep breath, and float. Because your body actually can float. You have to trust in what seems to, in the moment, make no sense to trust in. And for us, that's a lot like when we're being called to bear witness to Jesus. And we have to trust in the Spirit, whose presence we know cognitively, but maybe we can't feel in the moment. It doesn't feel like the thing we should trust, but it is. So um, one thing I want to make sure that we hear loud and clear is that Jesus is not calling us to be cynical. He's not calling us to just be super doubtful of everybody because he's called all of us here together and we've got a whole rest of the New Testament that tells us that people like us who are followers of Jesus are supposed to actually grow knit together in love. You can't do that if you don't trust each other. So this this trust in the Father can't rule out trust among ourselves, trust in people who belong to the people of God. But um, this text is telling us that our trust is misplaced if we are trusting primarily in other people to protect us from persecution, to keep us safe, to help our lives to go according to the way that we want them to go. Uh, because Like we've been saying, we have a mission. 
And Jesus is the one who calls us to be wise in the midst of that mission and calls us to trust in him. So this rules out all sorts of other trusts. We can't trust in our friendships to ultimately protect us or to save us. We can't trust in our relationships. We can't trust in our work or even in ourselves. And all these are good things, and it's good to to have confidence in yourself. It's good to trust other people for relationships. But what this text is telling us is that it is foolish to place that trust above your trust in the Heavenly Father. Jesus is calling us to a healthy skepticism of a sin-stained world. Now, okay, maybe there's a question now. That's great. It's good to know who to trust. Um, But in the face of actual opposition, like my coworkers don't want me to tell them about Jesus. And they say, if I bring up Jesus one more time, they won't talk to me. How can I do that? Or my boss says that if I I mention Jesus, he's going to fire me. When in the face of intense opposition, real practical opposition, how does our trust not falter? How do we not waver in that moment? How can our trust endure? And in order to see that, in order to see how it can endure, let's look at verses 24 to 31. So Jesus says, A disciple is not above his master, or his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. What we see here is that Jesus is a master of discipling our emotions how we feel. In verses 24 and 25, he says, it is enough for a student to be like his teacher and a a disciple or a, a servant to be like his master. He's saying that's enough. That should be enough. He's setting the expectation. So some of us maybe expect, um, different lives than the one that we're following. When in truth, Jesus faced a life of suffering. He was called a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And so some of us, um, this is like a word to us to say, um, Jesus is telling us the kind of life we should expect. He's managing our expectations. He doesn't want us to be too surprised when we face opposition. He's preparing us for a negative world. We would be foolish to think that we could somehow rise to a higher level than our Lord who did not think himself too high to stoop and to wash the feet of his disciples and to give up his life as a ransom. So 
if we face rejection, we are following in his footsteps. Now, I should, like, a little asterisk on that. If you're facing rejection because you're not nice, or you are deceitful, or you're unkind, that's not Christ-like rejection. That's just normal rejection. So we have to be rejected for the right things. And so we shouldn't fear, Jesus is telling us in these verses, we shouldn't fear rejection as if our whole lives depended on success. In fact, for us, success in sharing the gospel might look like rejection because we, we did the mission. We're going to see, we're going to look at the other part of this uh, chapter next week, Lord willing, and um, we'll see that nevertheless, you're called to say peace, even to the people who reject you. So uh, we shouldn't fear rejection because it means we're following in our master's footsteps. And that's why Jesus says in verse 26, have no fear of them. Them is the people in power, the ones that have uh, the ability to do things to you, the ones um, who, in truth, cannot thwart God's mission, even though they have power. They cannot do anything that uh, God does not allow them to do. They are not doing anything that you haven't been warned about. So have no fear of them. More than that, verse 27 shows us that this fear emboldens a kind of action, or this lack of fear emboldens our action, right? We're called to what we hear in secret, proclaim loudly on the rooftops. This is a boldness that comes with the right kind of fearlessness. Um, And we're familiar with that idea, probably. Um, Now, verse 28 is tricky because it's so familiar to us. Don't fear the ones who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We, We know that verse. It's a familiar verse from Jesus. Um, And it's so familiar that maybe we don't quite grasp the gravity of it. Jesus is telling us not to be afraid of somebody who wants to end our life. Now, I don't know how many of us have ever been in a situation like that. And maybe it's rare that we will. But it's still the case that this is a high and lofty calling. It's weighty, not to fear anybody who can kill our bodies. And I pray that the Lord would keep us from that level of persecution. But it's worth noting that this is what he's saying to his disciples, is not to fear them. Um, And just as a note as well, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell is not Satan. It's not the devil. He doesn't have any authority over bodies and souls. He's talking about the same father um, who he's going to continue talking about. And I think it's worth noticing that when Jesus says, fear him, he doesn't say, because he's going to destroy you. He doesn't say, fear him, because he has power over you, and so he might crush you. Look at, look at what he says in verse 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So Jesus, Jesus says, uh, don't, don't fear the people who can kill you. Fear the one who has power over your soul 
because he cares for you. And we're, our brains don't know what to do with that. But the truth is that um, we're called to have a holy fear of the Lord, not because he might fly off the handle, but because he holds all things together, because he's the one who's actually in control. And it's a, apart from his will, nothing can happen. Not even a single feather of a bird can fall without his will. So um, earlier we were encouraged not to trust in human power and instead to trust in God's power. Now we're seeing as well that we're urged not to fear human power, but to fear God's power. So how can we be wise as serpents? Not only by knowing who to trust, but by knowing who to fear. And I need to take a second here, because some of us, when we hear fear, the fear of the Lord, um, even though it might be a familiar phrase, some of us, we kind of um, are unsettled by that. It seems strange to be called to fear the Lord. And we think that God should not be the cause of any such emotion. He should make us feel safe. He should make us feel loved. Let me be clear. The Bible, especially the Psalms, has so much to say about God being our refuge, our protector, our shield, and also of his love that will never be removed and it cannot be diminished. But we have to reckon with the fact that God is not just one more thing in the universe that we can analyze and explain. He is the maker of everything. Of course, he's beyond our comprehension. The Bible has plenty to say about how far above and beyond us God is and how incapable we are of standing before his presence as we are without being destroyed. Not because he's just blind power, but because he is like the purest and brightest light the purest goodness. And when you are looking at, whatever, a thousand-watt bulb, um, you cannot have shadows in the presence of so great a light. It's just physically impossible. There's, you, you're probably familiar. If you know the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's the famous line where Susan hears that Aslan is not a man, but rather a lion. And her first thought is, oh, I hope he's quite safe. And we know the line from Mr. Beaver. If you've read this book, if you've seen the movies, um, of course he's not safe. Safe? No. But he's good. Because we're not dealing with somebody who we can fully comprehend. We're dealing with the God who made everything. And so because of his infinite power, his glory, he's so far beyond us, that if we were to treat him lightly, we would be foolish. So fearing God doesn't mean being scared of him. It means rightly recognizing his greatness and having the proper posture of humility before him. It's more like the respect that an ordinary person would have before a great and noble king. It's not uh, the fear that you might have before a dangerous warlord. So, um, Related to that, there is such a thing as good fear. Sometimes fearlessness is foolishness, right? 
We could be fearless in a way that causes us and other people harm. But there is a healthy fear that goes in the opposite direction. So a healthy fear of, um, let's say, El Capitan in Yosemite. I'm pretty sure it's in Yosemite. Somebody correct me, maybe later. Um, A giant mountain. If you have a healthy fear of that mountain, you will be very careful when you're climbing it. If you have a healthy fear of a great responsibility, you will not be foolhardy in how you go about accomplishing that. So there is such a thing as a healthy fear. Um, But I do want to balance that out because some of us, myself included, occasionally might struggle with anxiety, with actually a medical condition where we feel anxious and we cannot control our heart rate, we can't control our breathing, and we need medication or we need other things. And for those of us who are struggling with that, Maybe the, the command to fear the Lord sounds a bit like somebody saying, you should be in a perpetual panic attack. And that's not what this is saying. Because God is not calling you to that kind of fear, that kind of trembling. I can't say everything, um, and words would not solve everything for that. But I can say this. Even, especially, those who feel weak, those who struggle with anxiety, you, if you belong to Jesus, you are on the side of the Lord of the universe. He's for you. He holds all things together, and he will hold you together. So we can fear him and trust him. Because a negative world is going to encourage us to fear all the wrong sorts of things. We're going to fear losing our status. We're going to fear losing our job or rejection from our friends or losing relationships that matter to us. And fearing God does not mean not caring about those things. But it does mean that those things have less control over how we conduct ourselves, how we act. Jesus calls us to a fearlessness of the world that is not foolhardy. And he also calls us to a fearfulness that doesn't make us freeze. This is a fear that emboldens us for action, to bear witness. So the heart of wisdom in a negative world is knowing who to trust and who to fear. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Psalms, uh, and also Another part of Proverbs tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart, not to lean on our own understanding. The Psalms tell us not to fear evildoers, and they also tell us not to trust in princes. Jesus shows himself in our text this morning to be the true wisdom of God. He is wisdom in person. He not only teaches godly wisdom, but he embodies it. So how can we be wise as serpents? We imitate Jesus. Jesus knew the heart of people, and he didn't entrust himself to them foolishly. Jesus was not afraid of death, but he died for those who were captive to fear of death. He stood before the powerful of the world on trial. He was condemned to death, and he did so without fear, trusting his Father. And he spoke 
from the Holy Spirit in those moments. This same Jesus sends this same Spirit to help us and to comfort us. We can be wise as serpents as we bear witness in a negative world because Christ is the one we follow and he is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Against him, a negative world cannot endure. But we will in him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your gracious words of wisdom to us. Thank you that you do not call us to fearfulness that leads us away from action, but the kind of fearfulness that leads us into action, and the kind of trust that helps us to be bold in following you. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us, that you would give us the kind of trust that we need, the kind of fear that we need, and that you would be not just our example, but that by your Spirit you would work in us to accomplish this. And we trust that you will, for you are good, our good and loving Father. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.